Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Christina Baker-Klein at Scott County's Prior Lake Public Library. Novelist Christina Baker-Klein is best known by many as the author behind Orphan Train, a runaway hit that reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list and continues to chart well on trade paperback bestseller lists nearly two years after its debut. Depression-era Minnesota factors prominently into this true-to-life tale, which centers around a welfare program responsible for relocating thousands of orphaned and destitute children to new homes in the Midwest between 1850 and 1930. At present, there are well over two million copies of Orphan Train in print, and foreign rights have been sold in nearly 40 countries. Klein is also the author of four previous novels and writer or editor of five works of nonfiction. Klein makes use of slides in this discussion. If you're interested, you can find these online at clubbook.org slash podcasts. And now, Christina Baker Klein. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm so happy to be here tonight. I feel a little bit like this is a homecoming for me, even though I'm not from here. Um, my husband's family is from here, and some of them are even here tonight in the audience, which was a real surprise. Kleins in the audience in the back. They got the most comfortable seating back there on the couch. Um, so uh, my husband was born in St. Paul. My husband's whole family is from this area in North Dakota, as I'll talk about in a minute. And, um, this whole book began here. This is ground zero of my, of my story. And so it means a lot to be back in this area. Um, I've done a lot of events in Minnesota. It's been a wonderful place to come. My husband's family has a house in Park Rapids. Um, and he grew up in North Dakota and uh, in Fargo. And so um, this is all very familiar territory and fun. So <clears throat> before we get started, I have a couple of questions for you. First of all, I just, I talked to one woman who is the daughter of a train rider. Are there any other people in the audience who are related to orphan train riders? Raise your hand if you are. Where's the woman I was speaking to? Great, come up here for a sec. So before we get started, okay, this is real living history here. Um, so I want to just have, ask you to tell us um, the story. Your father was the foundling, which was the Catholic organization. He was given to the Fondling Hospital when he was five days old. Um, his mother could no longer take care of him, and we don't know why. And he lived there till he was four years old, and then he was put on the orphan train. His adopted parents in northern Minnesota had already chosen him. They wanted a healthy boy, so by number, however they numbered them, he was already chosen, and he rode the train from New York City to... I don't know if when they got to St. Paul, if they were travel, if they were transported another way or not. I don't know. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing, and I love your red hair. We'll talk more about that in a minute. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So here's what we're going to do tonight. I. Um, first, I'm going to tell you what this book is about, if you haven't read it. Uh, my novel is the story of a 91-year-old woman with a hidden past as an orphan train rider and a 17-year-old girl, part Native American in Maine. Uh, she's Penobscot Indian, and she's in foster care. She's been sort of kicked around by the system. 
She stole a book from the library and has to do community service. Uh, and her community service is helping this old woman clean out her attic, this wealthy old woman who seems to have nothing in common with her. But as this girl begins begrudgingly opening boxes and going through helping a little bit, she comes to understand that the two of them have much more in common than either of them would ever would have imagined. And the two of them begin to tell their stories. That is the story of my novel. And there is a whole story to be told, uh, which I have done in other presentations, about Molly's story, the story of the Native American girl. I did a lot of research. My mother was in the Maine State Legislature. She was very involved in Native American rights. Um, I was just talking to someone uh, when I was signing books about what happened in Minnesota with Native Americans on reservations and foster care. That same thing happened in Maine. My mother was involved in something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commu uh, Commission, which um, was trying to figure out reparations for Native Americans who'd been taken out of their homes and off reservations and put in foster care with non-Native families and never returned to them. So while she was doing that work, I was working on this book. And it's just naturally happened that our research sort of came together in a way. Um, but I also grew up in this town of Bangor, Maine, five miles from the reservation Indian Island that I describe in the novel where Molly lives. And I went to school with um, kids from that reservation. And I'd never written about it before. So, so anyway, Molly's story, which was a big part of my own experience in writing the book, of course, um, is fascinating to me. But what I'm going to talk about tonight is the origin story of this novel, how I stumbled on the story of the orphan trains, why I wrote a novel instead of a nonfiction book, which I think would have made more logical sense, given the vast amount of material that you'll hear I found. Um, and then I want to share with you a little bit as well about my creative process in writing this novel and how I made some of the choices I made as I went along. OK, so let's get started here. It all began with this child. This is my son, Hayden. In this photo, he is eight years old, kind of a quirky child, <laughs> playing the piano in his pirate costume. Today, he is 21 years old and a junior in college. But when this photo was taken, as I say, he was eight. My son, Will, was seven. He's now a sophomore in college. And my son, Eli, was three. He's now 16. So you can see this was a while ago. And we were visiting my mother-in-law in Fargo, North Dakota, my, my in-laws in Fargo, North Dakota, in December, which, as you well know, meant that we would, of course, be stuck inside, before global warming at least, during a blizzard. <laughs> so um, we were. We were stuck inside during a blizzard. And in desperation, on the third day, my poor mother-in-law, with three little boys running around ramshot all over her house, pulled a book off the shelf. This book. Let's see if I point in the right direction. It's called Century of Stories. So Carol, my mother-in-law, grew up in a little town called Jamestown, North Dakota. Some of you may know it. Um, her father was president of the Savings and Loan. Her mother was a housewife. She had a sister. They both lived there until they went off to McAllister College at the age of 18. She had three aunts who lived in town. Um, a typical sort of small town upbringing. And um, she had received this story, in this book in the mail which was a collection of newspaper articles from this town that she had never actually bothered to look through. So she got the book, stuck it on a shelf. We showed up many years later. And in desperation, she pulled the book down, literally blew the dust off the cover, and started to leaf through it with Hayden. And they came across this article. They called it Orphan Train. <clears throat> and it proved there was a home for many children on the prairie. Now, as I told you, Carol had lived in this town until she was 18. And according to this article, there were dozens of children who ended up in Jamestown from the orphan trains. And yet, she had never heard of them. Even more astounding, her father was featured in this article. Her father, his younger brother, and their three sisters, five children, orphaned and sent on a train to Jamestown, North Dakota, she had never heard a word about it. Now, as the mother of three boys, it pains me to admit that I'm not shocked that the boys might have kept quiet about it, because boys can be a little squirrely sometimes, in my experience. 
But I'm also the sister of three girls, and I'm really surprised that those aunts never said a word about their experience. And by the time Carol went through this book of stories, of newspaper articles, they were all dead, and she could not talk to them about it. To give you a sense of how pervasive secret keeping was in Jamestown, North Dakota at this time and, and in many other places, um, a few years ago, a friend of my mother-in-law's, Carol, was doing genealogical research um, about her fa this family. And she said, did you know that there was a sixth child? So Carol's father was 15. The orphan train riders were two to 14. He had aged out on the train. He got off the train. And as I always tell my 15-year-old, now 16-year-old son, Imagine you get off a train, you're 15, you have to find a job, a place to live, and l food for that night. Nobody was helping him. He had to make his own way. The brother was 13, the girls were 10, 11, and 12. There was an eight-year-old boy. He never got onto the train. He was put into what was called the home for the feeble-minded. That was actually what it was called. They think he probably had Down syndrome, and he died there. And again, none of them ever mentioned this brother. So Carol was flabbergasted. Um, my husband, who had been a history major at Yale, you'd think maybe in his book learning somewhere he would have heard about this story, um, was also flabbergasted. And I myself was shocked. But I could tell right away that this was a big story, and yet I uh, was completely intimidated by it, and I also felt like an interloper. As I began to read about the orphan trains, I learned that the people who had written about it were either historians, who really knew what they were talking about, or they were relatives of train riders. Um, and to this day, once a week, I probably get a self-published book from an orphan train rider's relative, because a lot of train riders' relatives have done all this research to try to find more information about their relatives. Um, so I, I, for a long time, I didn't, I didn't think that I was ready to write it. I took seven years where I, uh, I did two other, I wrote two other novels and a nonfiction book. I went through all those publication cycles. At that time, I was throwing um, ideas into a file. I was clipping newspaper articles. Um, I was in touch with the National Orphan Train Complex in Concordia, Kansas. I went to four Orphan Train Rider reunions, one in New York City and three in Little Falls. You may well know it. Um, I went to Ireland and did research in Galway and in this village called Kinvara, which I'll talk more about in a minute. And, um, I had a Google alert, so I got all this sort of information. And I soon came to realize that the orphan trains are a story about American history that has been hidden in plain sight. A quarter of a million children, the largest migration of children in the history of our country, were sent on trains over 75 years from the East Coast, mostly New York, mostly Grand Central Station, to the Midwest um, on these trains. The trains held between 10 and 30 children. There were several different methods. The Foundling Hospital would uh, have people request a child, but the Children's Aid Society and other organizations had them line up by height. They were plucked randomly out of the lineup by whoever came along. And there was no screening process of any kind. So anyone who came along could take a child. And as you might imagine, there were some problems with that. So after seven years, I was old enough and grizzled enough that I decided, who the heck cares? I'm doing this project. Um, and I realized I was just ready to take it on. I had done a lot of research. I'd interviewed seven living trade writers. And I, um, and I felt that I sort of had wrapped my head around this story. So I want to tell you a tiny bit about how it all began. This is Charles Loring Brace. This man was a social reformer in New York City in the 1850s. He looked around and he saw that there were 30,000 children living on the streets. 30,000 children, homeless and living on the streets. There was no social mobility in New York at that time, virtually none. There were no social programs. There was no welfare. There was no foster care. There were no child welfare laws. There were no child labor laws. Children were property, which meant that they had no rights. 
and poor children, pure and simple, were labor. Children as young as four were expected to work. Furthermore, the wealthy in New York were not interested, really, in helping the poor. They were building parks and museums. Um, you know, they were building highways, uh, giving money to various causes. But poverty at the time was considered to be an inherited affliction, which meant that it was passed from one generation to the next, like a disease. It was believed that the poor, and in particular immigrants, poor immigrants, had what they called tainted blood, bad blood. Um, again, that was passed from one generation to the next. So there was no point in getting involved in those messy tenements. People were dying in great numbers. Darwinism, you know, whatever. They're going to die off, and maybe a few strong ones will survive. But it's really not our problem, is sort of what the rich in New York at the time thought. And you know, let's face it, one reason that we don't know much about the orphan trains is that the history of our country is not the history of the poor and the dispossessed. It's the history of presidents and generals, of treaties and laws and wars and declarations. But until very recently, and in many places, including Texas, for example, in the textbooks, there have been, there's been virtually no mention of the real stories of Native Americans, and of African Americans, what their real experience was like from their perspective, and certainly not of orphan train riders. So, um, so that is a really big factor. And another thing I want to say about that is every immigrant group that comes to our country undergoes a hazing process. That is part of what it has taken to become an American if you're an immigrant. It's as true today of Muslims and uh, Mexicans as it was in the orphan train days about the Irish, the Polish, the Jews, and the Italians. And the same people who are talking about building these giant walls today in America are they themselves, many of them, descended from immigrants who came to this country seeking a better life. And you know, when you read about the orphan train riders and you understand how hard it was to be an immigrant at the turn of the century in America, it gives you an incredible perspective about what's happening today. That's the end of my lecture on politics, by the way. <laughs> I just wanted to say that. So there are a lot of reasons that there are all these immigrants pouring in, all these children on the streets. But let me talk in particular about Ireland. Well, I want to say one thing first that I think is really interesting. I didn't know this until I was researching the book. Um, there are lots of reasons that there are all these poor people and uh, uh, the Industrial Revolution, et cetera. But I didn't really think about the fact that you know, the orphan trains started in the 1850s. And then, of course, the Civil War was raging. Union soldiers were dying in great numbers, leaving behind vulnerable war widows who couldn't take care of their children. And a significant number of children, of, as a result of the Civil War, ended up on the orphan trains. Isn't that interesting? Again, so many things that I learned doing this book that had never occurred to me. Here's another interesting thing. I told you that Charles Loring Brace was a social reformer. And by the way, he had a slightly evangelical impulse. He, um, he wanted to get the children off the streets and into good, solid, Protestant, preferably Methodist, he was Methodist, <laughs> homes, which of course he ran out of fairly quickly. <laughs> but he was also an abolitionist. And you know, there were no African-American children on the trains. And I always had understood that it was because of, essentially because of racism. You know, they, they only chose able-bodied children who were good-looking, who didn't have any blemishes, who would be chosen quickly. And I thought that Brace had been concerned that the children, African-American children, might not be chosen. In fact, it was the opposite. Uh, it was the opposite was true. He was an abolitionist, and he was afraid that instead of being indentured until the age of 18 or 21, these black children would be enslaved. So, right? Interesting. Okay, so Charles Loring Brace had this kind of glorified vision of the Midwest. When you read his writings, it was really interesting. He, he imagined, and I know this isn't far off from the truth, but he imagined, you know, rolling farmland with bucolic, with, you know, sheep frolicking and, and um, beautiful red barns and white farmhouses with wraparound porches and birds tweeting in the trees. Um, and he, he thought, if we can just get these poor children off the streets, 
of New York, um, where they're dying in great numbers, going to prison, becoming prostitutes, you know, having a, a really rough time of it, um, and get them into these fresh air, rural homes, um, they're going to be better off. And what he actually said is, the orphan trains helped to solve the great economic <clears throat> problem of poverty in our cities, for they send, will send future laborers where they are in demand. And by the way, make no mistake, it was always a labor program. That was the point that children would work. All right, so this is what New York looked like at the time that my novel took place. And in fact, if you, how many of you have read Orphan Train already? OK, oh, look at that. That's nice. Um, and if you haven't, it's great. You don't have to have read it to be in. Um, this is Elizabeth Street. This is where Neve begins her journey in New York City. This is where she leaves from, essentially. Um, and this very well could have been her tenement. Uh, the tenements were hard places to live. They were crowded. They were dirty. There, were, for a long time, was no running water, no plumbing, no electricity of any kind. Um, fires were rampant because these tenement buildings were often far from firehouses. Of course, there were no telephones. There were a lot of flammable materials around. People built illegal fires uh, to keep warm because there was no heat. Uh, they were overcrowded. Families of nine and 10 were in these tiny little apartments. It was a very tough way to live. There was a lot of disease. This is the Lower East Side. So immigrants were pouring into the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx. That's sort of where they tended to settle. And um, <clears throat> but as you can see, people of all different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, speaking all kinds of languages um, here in New York City. So at the time period that my novel took place, the Irish had it particularly hard. I know that some of you in here are Irish. I've spoken to you already. But um, so Ireland had, had just had had a terrible time of it in general. In the, in the 1800s, as I'm sure you know, the 19th century, there was the Great Famine where over a million Irish people died under the thumb of the British because anyone the Br Br Britain colonizes, it exploits. It's just the way it works for the English. Um, and then in the 20s, Ireland had what they called the Civil War, again, the British meddling where they didn't belong. And as someone who is part Irish and part English, I feel that I embody both oppressed and oppressor in my very <laughs> self. Um, but so then all this, you know, it was hard in Ireland and these poor people would stagger off the boats, come through Ellis Island or wherever, and only to be faced with this kind of thing. So to read you from the New York Times, this middle one wanted a girl of neat and industrious habits and an amiable disposition to take entire charge of two small children. No Irish need apply. These signs were everywhere. They were in uh, places people were trying to find apartments, jobs, saloons even, um, hospitals. I mean, it was crazy. So it was very hard for the Irish to get a foothold and a disproportionate number of Irish people, Irish children ended up on the orphan trains. I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Tenement Museum in New York City. Has anyone gone? Isn't it wonderful? So I, if you have children, here's how you get your children to go with you. You bribe them by taking them to Katz's Deli, which is right around the corner, which, by the way, is where that famous scene from When Harry Met Sally was filmed. <laughs> I didn't tell my children that, but I did take them there. Um, the Tenement Museum is a wonderful place, and they have different apartments um, that are re sort of constructed for different ethnic groups at different time periods. So they have the Italian family from 1890, say, and the Jewish family from 1910. And it just so happened that the Irish Catholic family was exactly the period that Neve would have been living in New York with her family. So if you go to the Tenement Museum, you'll be essentially stepping into the apartment that Neve lived in. And if we have time afterwards, someone remind me, I have a story to tell you about the Tenement Museum. We'll see if we have time. Here are two little girls gathering firewood, um, again, to build a, an illegal fire. I used a fire um, to propel Neve onto the orphan train because that was a common reason that people actually ended up on the trains. And they, as I said, were very common. Here are children just loitering on the streets. So boys were traditionally on the streets of New York, boot blacks and newsies, selling newspapers for a penny, often organized by gangs. Boys as young as nine years old were in gangs. I don't know if any of you have seen Gangs of New York, but um, it's not so far from the truth. Girls were often domestics. They cooked, cleaned, sewed, and took care of children tra traditionally. 
When I'm working on a novel, I always have an idea board, a big uh, uh, bulletin board with all kinds of stuff on it to inspire me. And so when I was writing Orphan Train, I had um, a clada, um, an Irish cross from Galway. I had a dream catcher from the Penobscot tribe in Maine. I had recipes and songs, many of which ended up in the book, uh, poems, and I had photographs. I'm very visually influenced, and in fact, my next novel, which I finished today, literally, um, was, thank you, I know, I'm very proud of myself. Um, <laughs> it's coming out next February, um, is inspired by a painting. It's called Christina's World um, by a painter named Andrew Wyeth. And I forgot to include a slide, but I'm gonna do that from now on. Um, anyway, but this photo is, was on my bulletin board for my, when I was writing Orphan Train, because this little girl was kind of a model for me of the character of Neve taking care of her younger sister, Maisie. And I want you to notice the expression in the eyes of these children. I'm gonna show you a few photographs now from the Jacob Rees collection, which I got from the Library of Congress. It's wonderful. Very few people were taking photographs of the poor and of poor children in particular. And this J Jacob Rees collection is quite incredible. So, in fact, let me ask you, what, what do you see in her expression here? Depression, despair, sadness, hunger, mistrust. What did you say? Anxiety. Yeah, I see all that too. This little boy is a boot black. He's seven or eight years old. Again, really common job. This is another picture that I had on my bulletin board. Now, if you've read my novel, you might be able to guess. Right, it's Dutchie. It was sort of a model for Dutchie. And what I saw in the eyes of this child, Dutchie is a child in my novel who's on the orphan train who is a sort of scrappy, defiant, it was defiance that I saw in the eyes of this child that I really wanted to capture. Um, but he's, he's you know, bridling against what's happening to him and uh, is a little bit unruly. Now this child, of course, would never have ended up on an orphan train, as I told you, they took the able-bodied children, and so a child like this probably would have had a fairly dire future ahead. You know, um, because I worked so closely with the National Orphan Train Complex, the Orphan Train uh, reunions, uh, I spoke with train riders and their descendants, um, I read over 300 first-person narratives, um, and I got very swept up in it. Even though, if, if I'd ever had the impulse to fudge the facts, I didn't by the time I was finished. It was really important to me as I wrote this book that every fact in the book be true. Because I knew that I was going to be telling a story that a lot of people wouldn't have heard before. And I wanted them to have the real story. Not only are the facts accurate in my novel, but the the things that happened to my characters were based on facts and truth. And I wanted to show a kind of representative train rider story. A, num a lot of train riders went into more than one home. A lot of train riders had their names changed in the way that if you take in a, d a dog, say, from a shelter today, you might change its name. That was you know, the thinking at the time when you they took in an orphan train rider. So, for example, in my novel, the character of, um, of Dutchie is traded for a pig by the farmer who takes him in. That's a true story. Um, another true story is Carmine, the little boy who had a crossed eye. I talked to a, the train rider um, that uh, that was based on, and he was almost not put on a train because the chaperones thought he would not be chosen. But he was chosen and taken in ultimately by a loving family. So I wanted to show that story. I want to show you two slides now that um, show you what happened to children on the streets of New York. Here's one of children in an alleyway playing with these barrels. And here, only a few years later, these boys have organized into a gang. Now, an interesting psychological fact about these train riders is that the most desirable children were boys between the ages of 9 and 14, as you might imagine, because, of course, they were pure labor, right? Um, girls of the same age were last chosen, usually. They were considered fallen women, a threat to the female of the household, often, through, of course, no fault of their own. Um, and unlike boys who could pretty much live in the barn, the girls had to be social, you know, they were domestic, so they had to live and eat uh, with the family in the house. So it was just much harder for girls. Um, but those boys who were so desirable were also often the most troubled 
they had joined gangs. They were manipulative. They were pickpockets. They might even have already been in and out of jail. Um, they had done whatever they could do to get by on the streets. Many of them didn't speak English or didn't speak it very well. Um, they, some of them had never been to school, didn't know how to read and write, certainly were not at grade level. So you take these, you know, independent children, for, uh, to, 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 for a, to use a nice word about them, independent children, um, and you send them into these small conservative communities and expect them to be socialized in families, not only socialized in families, but to be indentured or contracted until the age, essentially enslaved until the age of 18 or 21, in a worst case scenario. Um, that didn't always go over so well. And it didn't always work so well. And of course, there was no therapy. Um, and you know, as one train rider said to me, every one of us who rode on an orphan train had been through some tremendous trauma. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been there. The trains were the last resort. So you had all these traumatized children um, who had no way to express that. And furthermore, the children were told when they were put on a train, your past is not your past. Your parents are not your parents. Your life begins the moment you're chosen. And you should never, not only should you forget, did, not only were they told that they should forget what had happened to them, but that it was possible to forget. The belief at the time was that it was possible to forget. And as we all know, that isn't exactly true. If you're older than four years old, it's probably not that easy to forget. So I love this photo because don't these two look like they're about 40 years old? <laughs> Selling newspapers on the streets. Children on the streets of New York slept wherever they could. They slept on fire escapes, like these boys. They slept on grates. Notice their bare feet in this photo. This little girl is a seamstress, which is a, a very common job for girls. Um, she's sewing lace. She's nine years old. And again, this was a photo on my bulletin board. Um, when I was writing about the, the Burns household, the first household that Neve goes into, where her name is changed to Dorothy, they had a cottage industry where she sewed. And that, again, was very common, that train riders would go into homes where there were those kinds of cottage industries. And in her expression, I see a kind of uh, resignation, I think, that fear that she may not ever get out of there and she really doesn't know what's going to happen to her. And I wanted to capture that. So here we begin some photos of actual train riders. Now, th these two chaperones, H.D. Hill and Anita Clark, took over 100 trainloads of children. Um, as you can see, these children are, are well-dressed, aren't they? And so are these children. And as I began looking at these photos and reading more, I started to wonder who was subsidizing the travel of these children if it wasn't the wealthy in New York. And Charles Loring Brace, bless him, didn't have much money of his own. Um, and likewise, why did the trains stop running in 1929? We all know what happened then. The stock market crashed. The Depression began. There were more children than ever in need. It wasn't until the late 30s that Roosevelt enacted legislation on the national level to protect poor people and children. Um, precursors of foster care, welfare, child labor laws, child foster uh, care laws, all of those child welfare laws, all of those came in uh, 37, 38, 39. That's quite a gap. So why did it, how did it begin? Why did, who paid for them to travel? And why did it end? Finally, I stumbled across this academic article that was quite critical of the orphan trains. And the author had gone through the ledgers of the train companies. And what she found was that in 1854, the railroads were expanding massively into places where no one lived. They were building depots all the way up the Midwest. And they needed bodies. And they banked on the idea that these children would age out and stay in the Midwest and populate these rural areas and not go back to New York. And you know what's incredible is that they could not have been more accurate. Not only did most train riders never return to New York City, most of them stayed within 20 or 30 miles of where they had originally been put. As one train rider said to me, I had been through so much turmoil you know, in my young life. I just wanted to stay, to stay put. Um, so the railroads subsidized the travel of the children, got them out to the Midwest. And in 1929, they built their last depot, they pulled out, and they stopped paying 
for the children's travel. As my son who's majoring in economics said, it all comes down to money, mom. <laughs> um, and, and that is mostly true. There was a bit of a backlash from the Midwest, not so much from the East Coast, where I think it was like out of sight, out of mind. Those children are gone. It's good. We're glad maybe they're so better off. We don't know, but we're sort of happy to have them off the streets. Um, but in the Midwest, I read editorials that said things like, stop sending us your refuse you know, your criminal element infecting our small towns and rural areas. But you know what? That wouldn't have been enough by itself to end the orphan trains because it was never a government program. It was a privately run program, and the government really didn't get involved. As the children got older, they started to kind of figure out what was happening to them. Um, I don't know if any of you have ever read a, um, a writer named Temple Grandin. She, is, um, she writes about animal and human psychology, as you know. She has Asperger's, a form of autism. And uh, she was commissioned to do a study of slaughterhouses to find out how to get cattle to slaughter in a way that was humane and so that they wouldn't stampede. And what she found is that if you take cows from a large pen into a slightly smaller pen and a smaller pen, and then you send them along a chute, one behind the other, in a very slow, orderly fashion, so that they can only see the one in front of them. They'll march straight into the slaughterhouse without any problem at all. And I always think about that when I think about how these children were herded onto the orphan trains. You know, because if you think about those boys who were running around on the streets of New York, if they'd known that they were going to be indentured until the age of 18 or 21, they would never have gotten on a train. Um, so a few nights before they were put on a train, they would be told, you're going to go to a family who loves you. I talked to train riders who said it wasn't until they were standing on the platform that they even knew that they would be going on a train. And it wasn't until they were halfway across the country that they were told that they would be lining up by height to be plucked randomly out of the lineup by whoever came along and indentured until the age of 18 or 21. And the interesting psychology of it is that as terrifying as it was to imagine being chosen by some random stranger in that way, it was even more mortifying to many of these children to imagine being rejected, right? And not being taken. So there was this cognitive dissonance that the train riders describe, this really strange feeling of both wanting to be taken and, and fearing what was ahead. My novel went through about 20 different covers. Um, this is one of them. And the reason I'm showing you, it to you is this is the, exactly the kind of little suitcase that the train riders carried. In fact, my mother-in-law in North Dakota found an orphan train rider's suitcase. And when I travel around New York with, to do talks, I bring it with me. It's very sweet. When you're writing a novel, you have a lot of influences, conscious and unconscious. And it was not until I saw this potential cover that I realized how influenced I had been by the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. <laughs> Doesn't she look like Laura? Um, I read each of those books about, I was so obsessed with them as a child. I read them all about six times. And even those dark ones, you know, the one that Rose wrote and the later years and all of it. Um, and I have no doubt that it was, th those were an influence on me in finding this story. For a long time, this was the only photo I could find of the orphan trains. It's a very strange photo. Way more children than usual. They're literally on, standing on the train. I don't know why. It's, I've seen various dates for this photo and various locations. Who knows where it was taken? It wasn't until after I published the book that an orphan train rider's daughter in North Dakota sent me this photo of her mother on the train she was on, and it's a much more representative group and size. All boys, of course, a popular crowd. Older boys, an even more popular group. And not to put too fine a point on it, the National Orphan Train Complex says, we had just gone through a civil war to abolish slavery, but the farms and shops still needed labor. Some of these children took the place of slaves. They were indentured or contracted. Adoption was not required. A family did not have to pay more than room and board. Now, you know, Charles Loring Brace, his dream was that the children would be adopted that they would be contracted and then adopted. But most of the orphan train riders were not adopted. Um, and 
It took me a long time to figure out why. I'm sure you all know, but I'm very slow. Um, finally, I realized what it is, that most of these children were going into ho rural homes with farmers. The government had been in the habit of giving, you know, 150 acres, right, to farmers. And as you know, there were even these enormous bonanza farms. So a farmer takes one of these children home, and the family says, there's no way that that ragamuffin from the streets of New York is inheriting our land. And of course, adoption would mean inheritance. So there was this natural disincentive built in um, that he hadn't quite thought through. This is an actual certificate of indenture. And uh, the important line is simply that we shall place such child as an apprentice until such child shall arrive at the age of 21 years written, written in. Oh, I know. Trains of all babies were called mercy trains, but it was much more common for girls, as I describe in the book, older girls, to take care of the younger children on the trains. So this little girl, Alice Ayler, uh, I only discovered her after I had written my novel. But she's nine years old in this photo. She's nine years old when she rode on an orphan train. In 1929, the same year as my character, she's very similar. Her biography is very similar in some ways to that of my characters. So, but what she says about this, this is her mother and four younger siblings. She says um, she, that her mother raised her and her younger siblings in a forest in upstate New York, surviving, she said, on green water and berries. And then her mother died. The five children were separated, as was usually the case, and put on different orphan trains. And she says she was um, orphaned at age nine. She moved from family to ha family. She says, I was a hired hand without pay. I was told constantly that I had bad blood. Remember I told you about the bad blood. I was always looking at my veins and wondering what could be bad about it. It looked just like everyone else's. People have asked if the second home that my character goes into, the Groats family, was an exaggeration, if I was exaggerating it for effect. Um, and I absolutely wasn't. In fact, I was really careful in the book. I didn't want to show the most dire situations, and I also didn't want to sugarcoat what it was like to be a train rider. Um, I wanted to, as I said, show a representative story. This is an article I'm going to just quickly paraphrase from the Washington Post in 1905. So Superintendent Hall of the North Dakota Children's Home um, says that a company of children is arriving, none more than four years old, and he is afraid that they will be doomed to, surf to drudgery, he says, which will amount to serfdom, because they're being taken in by families who don't speak English in the middle of nowhere, essentially, far from towns and schools, where he is afraid that they're essentially going to be slave labor and nothing more. Um, he says they are illiterate and unclean. And among these people who hold aloof from Americans and cling to, he said, old Russian customs, the orphans will be reared unless the state can prevent it. Of course, the state did not prevent it. They did not jump in. It was a private program. Um, and that was just the way it was. So I was so happy to stumble on this map. As you can see, uh, orphan train riders actually went all over the United States, even into slaveholding states. Um, and you know, it was the heyday of rail travel. The official orphan trains came from the East Coast, but there were trains from California to the Midwest. The Midwest, you probably know about trains that went from here to Canada and from Canada down um, to the East Coast from the Midwest um, and down, as you can see, as far as Florida. Um, when I was researching the book, we discovered that my husband's grandfather was not on an official orphan train from New York. His train came from Missouri. He and his siblings came from Missouri. But there were children traveling on trains all over the United States. This is a slightly different version of that map. And by the way, this is really partial. Only until 1910, only one of the six or seven different organizations that sent children. And even then, the numbers are low. Record keeping was very spotty. But I was showing this slide in New York City, and there was a woman in the audience in her 90s with her daughter. And she said, when I showed this slide, she said, you know, this reminds me. I grew up in upstate New York on a farm. And she said, every summer we had, you know, the orphan train riders came and they lined up. I, I, we always picked those strong boys. She said, those boys had the most marvelous time laboring in our fields. <laughs> and I thought, I would really like to talk to those boys <laughs> and hear their, their, their perspective on that. 
This was the journey of my character, as you can see, a common journey for a train rider coming from Grand Central to Union Station, Chicago, up through Minneapolis, um, the Milwaukee Road Depot. And I, as you all know, I made up the name of uh, uh, Albans because I wanted to have a little space that I didn't have to be absolutely. The, the only thing I made up in the book is the name Albans here. And Spruce Harbor is a kind of combination of some small villages in Maine. Here are some typical posters um, advertising the children uh, that were coming to town. And the one that I quote from, which is hard to read here, this is the one, it essentially says, the, the line that I find so poignant is it says, a company of, of homeless children will arrive. These children are of varying ages and both sexes, having been thrown friendless upon the world. It goes on to say, homes are wanted with farmers. Being mostly of respectable parentage, they are desirable children and worthy of good homes. I think that's so funny because, of course, they had no idea what kind of homes these children had come out of, um, but they were advertising them in this way. And then it says the indenture provides for four months of schooling, which, as we all know, was not very much. But for especially those older boys, um, they didn't have much incentive for going to school and being made fun of and teased and you know, learning how to read with kids who already knew how to read. And the farmers had little incentive for sending them. So sometimes it was hard to enforce that. I've told you how hard it was for the Irish, how hard it was for girls. So of course I made my character an Irish girl. Well, it was even harder for redheads. Redheads were so unwanted that they were actually banned from the trains for a number of years. Here's an article from the New York Times um, and I'll just quickly, again, paraphrase. Foundlings find homes, no redheads among them. So 52 black, brown, yellow, and flaxen-haired children are sent on a special train. No redheads or children with freckles are among them because redheads, especially those with freckles, are not easily placed in homes even if their hair is of Titian and their freckles beauty spots. I love that. So then they ask the traveling agent why, and he says he's inquired all over the United States and has invariably been told that redheads fight too much and have bad tempers generally. He does not agree with this verdict, he says, but it is difficult to defeat a tradition that has stood for many generations. These are my two oldest children. <laughs> So Hayden's on the left and Will's on the right. And as you can see, I had quite an incentive for making my character a redhead. Um, and it was really interesting to talk to them at the time, they were teenagers, about this, what I was discovering, because of course I jumped straight down the rabbit hole of research. Did you know that in the Middle Ages, redheads were burned at the stake? And did you know that even in Ireland, where, let's face it, there are many redheads, um, at the turn of the 20th century, if a red-headed woman walked past a ship before it had been christened, it was considered bad luck. I found so much interesting stuff about redheads. And I was talking to these guys about it, and we were sitting around the kitchen island, and their friends were there saying, redheads have no souls, and you know, whatever, teasing them. And Will said, my, in the white here, um, you know, when you're in middle school, whatever sets you apart is what people are going to teach you about. I mean, it's true of anyone. So it's not, it's not really a big deal to us. But he said, but you know, if you, it's interesting, if you Google redheads and look at images, <laughs> things like this come up. <laughs> or this. So when I talk to colleges and schools, um, it's a really interesting way to talk about discrimination and prejudice because people don't tend to think of redheads having it quite so hard. But in fact, it was very difficult for them. Speaking of redheads, here we are on the Irish part. So this is the Clada, the Irish cross I was talking about. If you've ever been to Galway, um, which is where they were invented, you'll see them everywhere. Maybe some of you even have rings. But rings and necklaces and uh, tattoos and baseball caps and t-shirts. And you know they wear them all over everything. And I loved the symbolism of this Irish heart. And I write about it in the novel. The village of Kinvara, which is 10 miles south of Galway, five miles from where the Titanic left, is the village that I chose because Kinvara sent the largest number of immigrants from Ireland to America 
at the time period that I was writing about. It was absolutely destitute. It had been decimated by the Great Famine and then the Civil War. So they had a really rough time of it. If you go to Ireland now, it is the most beautiful little village. It's really fun to visit. It's hard to believe that they had such a terrible time of it. This is the logo of the Orphan Train Riders of New York. So um, most people who rode on the orphan trains went to their deaths without really talking about their experiences. But in 1960, a woman confessed to her best friend in um, Wahpeton, North Dakota, that she had ridden on a train. And her friend said, I know someone else. The two of them got together. A third woman somehow was summoned. And the three of them said, what would happen if we put an ad in newspapers all over the Midwest to see if people might come to a get together? So in 1961, nine people showed up in Wahpeton, North Dakota. And in 1965, in Fargo, North Dakota. And in 1969, in Little Falls, Minnesota, where the reunions are still held to this day. Um, so uh, over time, these reunions grew and grew, and then of course, eventually they got smaller and smaller. The train riders were very private. They did not want anyone to come, but those feisty descendants, and by the way, of the quarter of a million train riders, there are now nearly four million descendants. Um, those feisty descendants batted down the doors and insisted on being included. So if you go to an orphan train reunion now, you'll see hundreds of these descendants carrying three ring binders and all this, genealogical research and exchanging information. It's quite an amazing thing to see. And by the way, it was not until the descendants started becoming lawyers that the records got opened. The birth certificates of the train riders were altered, destroyed, and locked up. Most of them never saw anything. And even if you can get your hands on one today, they're often um, you know, mutilated beyond recognition. But some lucky train riders have, have been able to get them. And it is because, as I say, there were lawsuits threatened. Um, by the time I came along, the Children's Aid Society said, come, help yourself to our records. We're so open. But you know that's the way it always is, isn't it? That someone, someone carves that path. OK, so here I am at a reunion in Little Falls, Minnesota. I'm standing next to Renee Wendiger, who is the encyclopedia of all things Orphan Train. She's quite an amazing woman. Her mother is this woman. She's the only woman still alive of all of these. Do you know Renee? And do you know her mother? And her mother is how old now? 101, is that right? 101 or 102. It, you know, when I began this book, there were 150 living train riders, estimated living train riders. And today, as I understand it, there are fewer than 10. And they're all between about 95 and 105 years old. So how lucky was I to stumble on a piece of living history at a time when I could really talk to people who had experienced it? So three of these four women, as I said, are no longer with us. The woman in black is Sister Justina, who ran the reunions at the a convent in Little Falls. Um, Renee's mother is in Maroon. And um, when I finished my novel, Renee called me. Um, I had sent it to her. To, she was wonderful at helping me look at the facts. And she said, it's really uncanny. There is this living train rider whom you've never met and did not interview, who is 93 years old. Her family came from Ireland through Ellis Island, red hair even when she was young, um, uh, you know, propelled onto an orphan train uh, from the Lower East Side came to rural Minnesota, multiple homes, even had, had her names changed, even married a soldier from World War II. I mean, so many things that were similar, exactly the same time period, everything. She said, you must call her. And I thought, are you joking? I've just finished writing this book. I don't want to interview one more person. I've done. I'm done. I've done all this research. but. Um, but I soon got over that. And the smartest thing that I ever did is I recorded a phone call with this incredible woman who was 93, um, living in Minnesota. She um, was so eloquent about her experience that as I had feared, it meant that I had to go back and change something in my novel. This is that woman. Her name is Pat Thiessen, and this is her first Easter in Minnesota. So what she says about this photo is, I was four years old. I came to Red Lake Falls, Minnesota. 
I was indentured. That was all I knew. I had the papers. Um, she says, the people who took me in, the parent, my parents were older, uh, in their 50s. They were grandparents. She said, the relatives were not that happy about me. They kind of looked down on me. They must have figured, what is she doing, that woman, taking in, taking in a little kid like this, like that? This is Pat today. Not today, but this is Pat. Doesn't she look exactly the same? <laughs> it's even the same pose. Um, so when I got off, so I, the last reunion I went to uh, in Little Falls, I got off the plane in Minneapolis. I was so excited to meet Pat, because I had only spoken to her on the phone. As I said, she had this great influence on me. And I got off the plane, and Renee called, and Pat had died like that day, like that day. And Sister Justina had died about a week and a half earlier. The reunion was on Friday. Um, I, I believe it was Friday. And there were supposed to be four train riders. My first reunion had 11, the second had seven, the third had four, and the fourth had none, none. So the two living train riders were ill, two had just died, and there were about 300 descendants. So a nun stood up, this was at the Little Falls Convent, and said, we have decided we will hold these reunions into perpetuity, but they'll no longer be called reunions. From now on, we're going to call them conferences, because that's what they've become, a place for the descendants to exchange information. I was Thrilled to be there, I was devastated that I didn't get a chance to meet Pat, but I want to share with you what she said to me that was so influential, among other things. I mean, everything she said was great, but I asked her how being a train rider has affected her and her life. Keep in mind that she's 93. She said, lots of time, late at night, not sleeping, I think I would have liked to have been raised by my own people. I think about that a lot. And I said, do you still think about it? And she said, oh, yes, I do. I do think about it. I do wish I'd been brought up by my own people. I miss it. She said, I don't know what I'm missing, but I miss it. And I said, what does it feel like to miss that? And she said, it feels incomplete. I keep wondering, what were my grandparents like? My uncles. What did they have in the family that I could have enjoyed? Who would I be? I think of all these things, you know. I had a good home, ultimately. I don't mean that. But I always felt that they were not my people, and they weren't. And it was something about the finality with which she said that that made me realize I needed to go back and change the section that I wrote about the Nielsen's, the final home that, that my character Vivian goes into because um, I realized when she was talking that a lot of train riders had said this to me in one way or another, not quite as clearly about never quite feeling at home. Um, and so I wanted to try to convey that feeling. To end with a lovely story, when Pat was in her mid-50s and her son was in his 30s, he was bound and determined to find out what had happened to her. So uh, they're both in Minnesota. He had, they had a birth certificate with um, with uh, the name of a girl in a small village in Ireland, uh, the name of this village, and her age of 18. So what did this man do? He booked two tickets to Ireland, and as she described it, I had a hair-raising journey on the wrong side of the road to this little village <laughs> of Warringstown, and got out, and he said, uh, does anyone recognize me in the corner store? And we're like, no. Um, so he pulled out the birth certificate and told this story, and at someone in the back of the store, an old man said, there's a family with that surname. I've never heard of that girl. And they walked four houses down, semi-detached houses, and knocked on the door. And the door opened, and it was, and it was the family. Um, what happens, I don't know if you all have seen the movie Philomena, but what happens in small Irish villages in 1913 to 17-year-old girls who get pregnant, they either go into convents or they get sent to America. And that's what happened to her. And no one ever saw her again or heard from her again. But Pat was so happy to finally have some sense of where she had come from. There were a lot of problems with riding on the orphan train, obvious problems. I mean, if you don't have a birth date or a birth certificate, you have a tough time of it. Um, and there were also the kind of problems that 
children have who are in closed adoptions, especially if they've come from China and Russia and other countries like that. But you know, the truth is, a lot of train riders thrived. I would say the vast majority of them did really well. Two became governors of North Dakota and Alaska, which was not even a state at the time of the orphan trains. They became doctors and lawyers and shopkeepers and teachers and librarians and therapists. Um, you know, those small conservative communities that were very difficult to break into for many train riders eventually became safe havens, as I've said. And, um, you know, it took some of them some time to sort of get on their feet and settle in. But once they did, um, I think many of them ended up feeling that given the alternative, being here was uh, a wonderful thing for them. Um, and I'm going to make a gross generalization now about Midwesterners <laughs> that no one has ever refuted. Being married to one, I feel that I can say this. <laughs> but I do believe that there is something about the Midwestern spirit that in the absence of therapy might be useful, which is a kind, my husband is this way with our boys, you know, a kind of like, you know, I don't need to hear about your troubles. Everybody has them. Put one foot in front of the next, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get on with it, and just don't complain too much. And you know, I think that that message for the train riders might not have been so such a terrible one. You know, they went into rural homes where everybody had to work hard. And so I think that eventually, as I say, many of them settled and, uh, and uh, populated this beautiful land. With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our Club Book audience for questions and comments for Christina Baker Klein and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from a reader wondering if the children had any say in where the orphan train left them or in the families they lived with. They did not, the parties did not include the children, really. I mean, they might have been asked, but because children were property, it was much more likely that the adult would be believed if there was a conflict than that the, child, than that the children would be believed. And as I describe in the book, it was also the fact that for these volunteers in the community who were supposed to be checking up on the children, it was annoying and a pain in the neck if a child needed to be changed because it was a big to-do. It was often hard to find a new family and, or they'd have to go back to New York. And so it was just much easier to try to make it work. By the way, that's not so different today in foster care. Um, and you know we have laws to protect children today, but one interesting thing that I tried to emphasize in the book, I work with uh, kids in foster care, is that um, the situation has changed. It's much better today. But the feelings that the children experience in foster care today are the same feelings that the children had on the orphan trains of being abandoned and unwanted. And that is why the problem of these homeless children will never exactly be solved, just because it's a hole, as Pat Thiessen described, that can't ever quite be filled. Um, we do have therapy today, and that helps, too. This audience member asks about the fate of the children who were not chosen by families after traveling to the Midwest on the orphan train. So what happened is they lined up by size, and if they weren't chosen, they got back on the train, went to the next stop, and lined up by size again. Um, eeny, meeny, miny, mo kind of, you know, or musical chairs or something. They, uh, you know, they got fewer and fewer. The redheads, I mean, the reason the redheads were banned is that they would do the whole route, you know, Grand Central all the way up and back, and there'd be three redheads sitting there on the train. So, you know, the children who were left would come back to New York. Either they aged out, they went into an orphanage, or they were back on the streets, or they went back on the train. I talked to the daughter of a train rider who had been on the train three times. She had actually gone three times before she found a home. Oh, and here's another fun story. Um, the, I talked to another person whose mother had been taken in, who was a train rider, who was taken in by a train rider, who had been taken in by a train rider. <laughs> How many novels are there to be written on this topic, right? <laughs> there are so many great stories. But, um, and, and this is why I get stories in the mail all the time because all these descendants are like, my story is so incredible. You know, I've got all this information, but so, yeah. So, so yes, and, uh, if they, and some children, 
some boys, for example, those older boys might run away. And then they would be who knows where and would be sort of out of the jurisdiction of the, of the trains. Our last question of the night comes from an audience member asking Klein to share her experience with the Tenement Museum in New York City. Okay, I'm going to quickly tell you my story about the Tenement Museum. We'll end with it, and then I'll sign books. Um, okay, so little, you'll have to forgive me because I'm bragging with this story. Okay, um, so I did all this research at the Tenement Museum. I kept going back. I took all these tours, and as I learned more about the orphan trains, I was struck by the fact that the Tenement Museum is right in the heart of where the train riders came from, and yet they were never mentioned on any tour that I went on or in any of the literature. So I went up to the director and I asked, why, why is there no mention of the orphan trains? And she said, you know, we consider that kind of a footnote to history. Aww. Not really a, such a big part of the story. Well, flash forward to November of last year, and I get a call from the Tenement Museum saying, we are inundated with questions about the orphan trains on our tours, and we don't know what to say. Will you please come in and lead a tenement talk for our staff so that they can learn more about the orphan trains? So I marched right in to the Tenement Museum. I was so happy to go in and, and do a little educating because Honestly, it's pretty incredible to me that the Tenement Museum wouldn't have talked about it. You know, in there really, the City Museum of New York didn't talk about it. If you go to the New York Historical Society, they have a little teeny part of their children's exhibit that has the orphan trains, but they don't otherwise talk about it. In fact, the only place that the orphan trains are really taught from my vast experience of yakking about this book, as you can hear in my voice, um, is social workers at NYU are taught about the orphan trains because they're only a few blocks from Grand Central. And uh, I guess social workers may have been involved in some way with such that they were back in the day. Um, so it's, I, you know, I gave a presentation to social workers at NYU and they told me that they had learned about the trains. But I've never talked to another group of social workers who have been taught about it. So maybe that will change, we can hope. Thank you all so much. That wraps up our Prior Lake Public Library event with Christina Baker Klein in Scott County. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with David Mura and Sun Young Shin at 7 p.m. Monday, March 14th at St. Paul's Marion Park Library. Writers David Mura and Sun Young Shin will come together for an evening of conversation about the Asian American experience in Minnesota. Mura is an award-winning memoirist, poet, novelist, and playwright. Shin is a poet and editor of the upcoming essay anthology, A Good Time for Truth, Race in Minnesota. Meet David Mira and Sun Young Shin, get your questions answered and books signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>